Hi there, welcome to an episode of an Inside View podcast in association with On The Ball Team Building. I'm your host, Jamie Finn. If this is your first time listening, please do go back to episode one and have a listen. If you haven't done so already, please do click subscribe. There is a business or sports person in each of us, and we hope that our guest stories will help our listeners to chase their dreams. Welcome to episode 7 on series 3 of an Inside View podcast with On The Ball Team Building. Big shout out to the Shire Baron Cafe in Clarny for the continued support for this season. Thanks very much guys, we really appreciate it. I'd also like to give a mention to Dubai-based ready-made meal company Fit Meals whom we have teamed up with. Their ready-made meals are excellent and so convenient. Check out an Inside View Instagram page to avail of a discount. This week, we're absolutely delighted to be joined by Cyril Ironman and Executive Coach David LeBoucher. The retired British Army officer was honoured with an OBE and an MBE for his actions while on military operations around the world. As a leadership expert, he wrote the doctrine taught at the higher centres of learning for all British forces. David has completed over 18 full Ironman races and has qualified for the World Championships eight times. There's no doubt we have a huge amount to cover, so let's bring him on. Hi David, thanks for taking time out to come on Inside View podcast. How are you keeping? I'm very well and thank you very much for having me on, Jamie. Brilliant. Uh, this is something we're... we're uh... We're trying to get over the line the last couple of weeks, but it's uh, it's great to have you on. Um, I know you're training uh, every single morning, is it, or twice a day sometimes? Twice a day sometimes. When it gets close to a race, even three times a day, I'm possibly a bit addicted. Uh, how how do you go about managing your your day? Because you know you're you're a full time athlete and you're um you're working with uh, optimal <laughs> fitness and you know you have a few business interests as well well i don't spend too much time at optimal fitness i'm very much an ambassador for the businesses now they're run by um a professional uh manager now rather than me as managing partner so actually my job is mostly coaching executive coaching and in between executive coaching yes i do quite a lot of training so to manage the day, I guess I, I get up early and I probably go to bed a little later than I should. Certainly, I don't always practice what I preach, which is sleep first. Um, are you still able to get up before the alarm at four o'clock is it, or five o'clock every morning? It depends on the day. So um, during the week, yes, it's a, it's a little before five o'clock. And uh, at the weekends, it's often a lot earlier. Um, but that just allows a little more training time. So yes, I get up. It's a it's a ritual. And like how, how you know how do you deal with that? Like I suppose now your your body is is would be adjusted to it. But we say initially when you were you know approaching or you know going down that route of of early morning, how do you deal with that self talk? You know that naturally comes into everyone's everyone's brain at that hour of the morning to stay in bed. Well, I. I... I do admit that I have those feelings that I sometimes want to stay in bed, but I also know that when I get up, I have a great day. And as I get up every day, I have a great day just about every day. It's very rare that I have a bad day. So 
part of it is this ritual. It's not negotiable in my mind. Part of switching off the alarm is swimming, swinging my legs out of bed. So it's not just reaching over to the alarm. If the alarm does go off, and I normally wake up a little before it, I've then got to get my feet on the floor. And then I've got a ritual thereafter, which revolves around a, a stiff cup of coffee, going to the loo, often with the cup of coffee, um, getting dressed and leaving the house to go and train. And you're, I, I've already speak as well before about it, and you've, uh, you've spoken to me about it. Um, you go fasting for long periods of time. Do you find that beneficial? Absolutely. For me, it's, um, it's part of maintaining a healthy weight because like anybody else, specifically anybody else of my age, we tend to put on weight quite easily. Um, so yep, getting up every day uh, and going fasted, a cup of coffee is, is my vice, uh, also my pleasure in the morning, but it has no calories. It's a, normally a Nespresso, a small one of really good coffee. Um, uh, and the reason I go faster is because I want to be a fat burner. I actually want to be very lean. I'd like to carry less weight and have lots of power because obviously in, in endurance sports, uh, having lots of power and less weight means a greater power to weight ratio, which means you can accelerate faster, go up hills more quickly. There are lots of advantages to it. And specifically, if you've got a running race at the end of the, um, competition, which triathlons normally have then you want to be light because carrying your own weight around a running course is, is hard work and every kilo counts. How do you go about, you know, taking on um, these energy drinks and taking on calories during race day? Do you find that quite difficult if you're not taking it on normally? No. The only thing is, uh, I, I see your point, because I never use energy drinks during training um, or very rarely. I sometimes carry one of these things. Hang on, I've got one here. Something... A, a little gel sachet of basically sugars and I'll carry it just in case I run out of glycogen. Uh, we carry glycogen in two places. We carry it in our muscles. And if we do, um, if we do heavy exercise, then you tend to burn through your muscle glycogen and you also carry it in your liver. And once you're through both your liver and your muscle glycogen, then you're in trouble because your brain requires um, carbohydrates to, to work. So you may have heard of people saying they bonk or they hit the wall. And that's often a case of just running out of carbohydrate. So then I, I take on carbohydrates during a race, uh, very religiously, because racing is a very different game to training. And I only race twice or three times a year normally. So it's not as if I do it too often, but when I race, for instance, I will have probably 17 of these, 17 just for the bike leg. So we're talking about an awful lot of sugar going into my system. And the idea there is to, uh, to replace that glycogen that you're burning as you, you move. And it's very hard to replace it in sufficient quantity to get to the end of a race sometimes. And do, do, you, like, do you find your body repelling against that, the fact you wouldn't be normally taken on board during training? No. No, I think um, I've got a very good um, system that seems to allow me to eat just about anything that um, anything and, and things that probably aren't really edible as well. So um, I, I don't believe in total cleanliness, for instance. I think we should all have lots of bugs. 
So I have a five second rule for food that's dropped on the floor virtually anywhere. Um, and I will eat it. And um, having grown up in a tank um, where the sandwich that you're given by your operator, the guy that stands next to you, may well be white bread, but it'll be black by the time it comes to you because it's covered in engine oil and everything else. So I think my system is pretty cast iron and I can take on sugars, even though I haven't practiced with them very much during training. And it just goes to show, I suppose, yeah, your, your system is, uh, is well drilled after the, the many three days, which we, we'll discuss in a, in a couple of minutes. Um, David, I found interesting. How, how did you end up over in Dubai? Oh, oh, that was actually a military posting in many ways. I was invited over by the Emiratis to be a senior military advisor. I was recruited in London, where I was basically a senior military advisor. So it was, um, it was a very similar job to the one I've been doing in London, uh, advising at a high level on military matters. And I had four years of that in Dubai, um, with the blessing of the, the Brits. Um, and I had a fantastic time. And of course, government jobs in Dubai, what is it, eight years ago now, um, you, you went to work very early, which suited me. And you left work very early, which also suited me because it meant I could train specifically during the winter, but in the afternoons and evenings, and then go to work early in the morning um, and be done with work by two o'clock in the afternoon. What was that time like? Um, you know, exactly what I know you, you said your role was advisor, but in regards to like what is an advisor, you advise them about military strategy, etc. Mostly in my case, military planning. I, I'm a planner by trade and actually by, by talent, I found out. I, I, I did a Gallup uh, Strengths Finder, the oh, yeah. uh, psychometric, and it says that two of my strongest innate talents are strategic and futuristic. So identifying what a great future might be and, of, and then finding the right pathways to achieve it. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that in regards to planner. Um, I know you were a planner for the gov- for the UK government. Uh, obviously, you you touched on the UAE government, but like, what exactly would you be doing? Say your days in the UK government. What were you doing in regards to being a planner? Is that just making plans for possible events down the road, or, or what exactly is it? Well, no, you're spot on, and and I was the head military strategic planning in Whitehall which means that I was basically dealing at the highest level of government with um, our likely response to worst case scenarios and most likely scenarios of the future. Worst case would be, let's say the Russians were to uh, invade, that would be worst case, and most likely would be some small country somewhere having a problem that required us to evacuate, for instance, um, UK nationals from that country. So there was a very big difference between worst case, which is general war, and most likely case, which is, you know, a small military operation to evacuate some, um, some of your citizens. So lots of planning, and we planned for everything. I mean, we had plans on the shelf for just about everything. And my day job, if you like, was to imagine what might happen and make the appropriate plans and put them into uh, digital form so that we could metaphorically put them on the shelf and dust them off when they were needed. And 
this initially when I did my research, this war didn't happen, but unfortunately we, we find ourselves in the in the midst of a war now. Um thankfully Ireland and, and the UK aren't aren't very much involved, but the UK are probably a bit more involved than Ireland. What is your take on the, the Ukraine and, and Russia war? Well, I think that uh Putin because of his separation from his key advisors, both physical and probably mental separation from his key advisors, believed his own rubbish. And at the end of the day, all of the people around him told him what he wanted to hear rather than what he needed to hear. And what he wanted to hear was that the Ukraine would love to be Russian and that if they walked into the Ukraine, they would probably be welcomed with open arms. Well, most people, including the Ukrainians, could have told him that was not going to happen. So he went in with insufficient force, discovered that they didn't want him there, and started dribbling extra force in afterwards, which is never a recipe for success in military operations. And I think he's, um, he's been very badly advised, or not advised at all, and has just applied his own abhorrent and wrong thinking. Um, and now probably has too much pride and too much ev everything else to do the sensible thing, which would be to pull back and say, oops, made a mistake, mate. That won't happen. This is a long war, I'm afraid. We're in it for the, the long term. Like you say, um, Ireland, the UK, less involved. Um, and hopefully it'll stay that way because boots on the ground is certainly not the answer in this case. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. Do you think it'll be finished soon? But no, you, you kind of answered it there. It's not, you know. No, I'm you... afraid this is, yeah. this is long distance. And why do you think that? Because nothing is ever over by Christmas. Um, we've, we talked about it back in 1914. Nothing's ever over by Christmas. People get entrenched in positions and it takes a huge amount of fighting and then talking and fighting and talking before things are resolved. And in this case, I think we're going to have to wait for most of these awful sanctions that will really damage Russia and the Russian people who are innocent, if you like, of their bosses' um, sins. And they are going to have to suffer extensively before uh, he is out of business and um, replaced, hopefully, by a, a more sane government. I'd like to bring uh, my listeners back to the early days of, of the guests. Um, and I think perhaps it's important to, to ask what brought you down the road of, of joining the British Army in, in the early days? Was it always something you wanted to do or were your family involved in it? Wow. Gosh, you're taking me back a long way. You're taking me back <laughs> to 1981, uh, which is when I left school. I was very lucky. I was... Um, I was given a great schooling. I didn't use it as well as I should have done. Hang on a second. And, um, and then, no, I had no idea I was going to join the army. I actually tried to play basketball professionally first. And while I was considered quite good in the UK, when I got to uh, the Boston Celtics and Boston in America, I discovered, even though they'd invited me thinking I, I looked like a good opportunity, I discovered that I got hit in the head more often by the ball than I actually caught it. And that the game played in America was a very different game to the game that we'd been playing in England. So I was considered absolutely useless by the Americans, which is probably generous. I was worse than that. 
and um, and then I found myself without a job. And so my father told me to get on my bicycle and not come back. And quite literally, I got on my bicycle and not come back till I had a job, which is quite a good bit of direction. So I went off to the local. Um, uh, it was a trading estate in Didcot, which is in sort of southern England. It had a huge, great power station there. And there was a trading estate next to the power station. So it was proper um, small industry. And I just went around on my bicycle offering my services. And one of them gave me a job pushing a broom around a warehouse for about six months before I saw all my friends in the army who had joined the army, one or two of them. And uh, I felt that they were having a much better time than me. So I thought that might be a good idea. And I joined up. Did you, did you expect what it was going to be like um, in regards to training and uh, in that regard, you know, stuff like that? No. <laughs> I don't think anybody knows what it's going to be like. I mean, from the moment you have all your hair cut off, and now I've got none, but in those days I had quite a lot of hair, to um, the first runs through cold rivers, and it was just wet and cold and miserable, and generally basic training and officer training is a just a, a leveling experience that leaves everybody on a par with each other and allows then the really good ones to shine through and get to the top. I wasn't one of those. I was pretty well average, uh, but I got through. And um, after a very short stint at Santos, I, I was through Santos and commissioned in six months, which is not possible these days. But basically b between being a, an 18 year old with um, a broom in a warehouse and a few pennies to buy beer, um, and being a commissioned officer was about six months. Excuse my ignorance now, but Santos, is that where the, the training occurs? Is it the training program? Yes, it's a place called the Royal Military Academy, Santos. It's in the sub southern part of England, and it is officer training for British Army officers. Okay, well, normally, it takes maybe up to a year. And how, like, how do you progress through it so quickly when you were saying, you know, you weren't really probably talented in regards to running and all that when you're you're younger starting off i think i was quite good at presenting myself well and um i was surrounded by a great team of similar minded but a great team of people who were determined to make each other successful and so i was carried by probably better young officer cadets um to get through in that time. Now, these days, you're right, it's, an, it's a year minimum, which is very different to most other countries. Uh, America, for instance, it's a four-year graduate course. Mm. Um, but for us, no, in those days, it was non-graduate, mostly practical. And the idea was that you then joined your regiment, you joined your unit, and you were taught on the job by old soldiers. Like, what kind of stuff would you go through? Is it all possible situations in in battle if it was going to occur or would it be you know evacuating british citizens would it be possible situations like that possible scenarios well in those days we were very much a one scenario army and that was russians the cold war the threat of um nuclear weapons and chemical weapons. So we'd train using gas masks. We'd train um, on basic infantry skills, which every officer needs to learn, which is you know, how to attack a hill that's got a machine gun nest in it or whatever else, and do it without dying yourself. 
Um, but basically, it was all the old-fashioned digging of trenches, marching up and down, um, getting some discipline into your life, and um, and becoming the standard of officer who can learn to lead, because you're selected for Sandhurst based on your leadership potential, not on your leadership. And you don't learn all your leadership at Sandhurst, you learn all your leadership over a career. Um, and you start with a relatively few men under your command who teach you leadership. And then you, as you rise up the system, you get more and more people under your command that you have to lead. And it's a, it's a very good progressive system. By the time you've been in for a few years, you probably know how to lead. What's your standout moment from that period with, say, coming out of Santos to, you know, the first year or two? What would be your standout moment? Because you, you definitely were a different person, you know, three years down the line than you were when you joined after cycling around looking for a job. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So the standout moment was that it was a very sociable business. We, we weren't a very professional some parts of the army were very professional, but we, were, we weren't well equipped, nor very well supported when I joined. We just had the Falklands War, which had exposed a lot of weaknesses. And so actually, it was a relatively amateur um, business in, in certainly um, some regiments were more about having fun and having a good life than being totally professional soldiers. We got more and more professional as life went on, uh, as you learned more. But as young officers, the pressures were not that great. You were supported on all sides. Wonderful quality of life. You were away Russians, and you had about three days of life expectancy, which was the trade-off for this wonderful life. So we, we were very sociable. Um, having a three-day life expectancy makes you very sociable. You, you tend to eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may be dead. Um, and that was the the feeling in Berlin, which was my first posting, we, we definitely partied hard. I, I remember 200 different restaurants on 200 consecutive nights, for instance. Um, oh, I was also, well, not being a very good drinker, I was drinking more than I could manage. So I was, um, I didn't have a very good head for drinks and anybody could drink me under the table. So I didn't drink a great deal, but I was often drunk. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, no, definitely, definitely um, on some of Yeah, and I was a smoker. Um, cigarettes were very, very cheap, tax-free. Alcohol was cheap, so we used vodka in the windscreen wipers of our cars, for instance, because it was cheaper than buying antifruit. Um, and when you have, a, when a young man single with other young men single are enjoying a city like Berlin, which is surrounded by Russia's third shock army, which was enormous, and you think you've got three days to live, you tend to party hard. And we were certainly very sociable. But why were you positioned or located in, in Berlin? Well, Berlin was a listening post basically for um, NATO. It was an island. It belonged to West Germany. It was the former capital of Germany, obviously, but now we had East and West Germany, and it was now just the capital of East Germany, or East Berlin was. West Berlin was divided between the other three nations of the quadripartite agreement, the Americans, the French and the Brits. So we had a sector within town and there was a the wall across the middle which divided us away from the Russian sector. And that was all just a legacy of the Second World War. 
when the Russians had approached from one side and, and the French, the Americans and the British had rushed in from the other to try to make sure that the Russians didn't take the whole city. Because at that point, there was another geostrategic um, plan taking place. And that's what we do with, the, with Europe after Germany has been defeated, because by then it was very obvious Germany would be defeated. So we ended up in this sort of cake of Berlin with the French, who were very much a conscript army and therefore not very professional at all with us. The Americans, who were all gung-ho and post-Vietnam um, and felt that they were very good, but were hated by the Germans. And we were the nice guys in town who the Germans quite liked. And therefore we had a, um, going back to the social life, we were popular. <laughs> and you, uh, before I actually get into that, I would like to just date it back to, I believe you spent a bit of time in Northern Ireland, you mentioned as well. Yes, a couple of tours in Northern Ireland, which was very, very interesting. Obviously interesting for you being, being an Irishman. Um, and from my point of view, that time was hugely exciting from a professional point of view, hugely frightening too. It was a proper shooting war. We had enemies on both sides of the political divide. So we had basically placed ourselves between two warring factions, the Republicans and the Unionists. And there was no doubt that our presence got in the way of what they wanted to do. Both sides felt that we were favoring the other side and we were attacked relentlessly um, by uh, those that didn't want us to be there. It, must so be it was it was frightening. It was I mean, it was it was proper. Lots of people dying, lots of bombs. Um, it was an environment where we didn't have the communications of today. So we only got two minute phone call back home every month. Um, and even though we were um, in Northern Ireland, we were nowhere near home soil. This was just a, a proper uh, operational set of tours. It must have quite frightening to come from, we say, Germany, that lifestyle, and then you spent a bit of time in Northern Ireland. I was Northern Ireland before Germany. Uh, no, I, I did. I came out of Germany to go to Northern Ireland for two six-month tours. So that's an emergency tour. And when you're on a six-month tour rather than a two-year tour, you're working 24 hours a day, seven days a week for the six months, and then you go home and get a nice chunk of leave to recover. And they train you well. You know, we trained for that environment, so we were retrained to go into, into Ireland. And then you come out and you go back to your normal unit in Germany and you retrain again to face the Russians. And that's what makes the British Army so interesting in many ways, is that you're constantly retraining for a different challenge. And the challenge in Northern Ireland at the time was all about uh, our enemy being amongst the people, the people that hated us and didn't want us there and who were going to attack us were amongst the people. Whereas in, in Northwest Europe, it was all about the enemy was all nicely in uniform and large Russian tanks and massed ranks of people that you could tell who was combatant and who wasn't. So Northern Ireland actually prepared us very well for future wars such as um, the uh, Iran-Iraq, uh, sorry, the, the Iraq deployments, not Iran-Iraq, um, and Afghanistan, where the, where the enemy again was amongst the people. You did mention previously that you were in the, the maze, um, you know, when, when Bobby Sands uh, died. What was it, what was the environment like then? 
around uh, the city. Uh, I was just after it was it was soon after uh, Bobby Sands in 1982, and absolutely astounding. The national feeling around that particular event um, was so strong. Um, Bobby Sands died for his cause. He believed in what he was doing. And no matter what side of the political divide you might have been on, you had to respect the depth of feeling that his depth caused across the whole of the island of Ireland. And it was a real eye-opener as to the emotional depth of the people of Ireland, whether north or south, whether six counties or Ulster or whatever um, you like to call it. Um, because when he was shipped south, he went by, I think, a hearse to uh, Dublin and, um, uh, and he died. And the, the road was lined throughout Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland, in other words, Ireland itself, by people who were paying their respects to a man who had died for his cause. And um, that, was, that was moving, um, no matter what, you know, whether you were um, um, a unionist or a Republican, I'm pretty sure everybody turned out because it was considered something that was uh, truly Irish, what, what he did, truly. Um, he, he was celebrated by certainly the Republicans as a true patriot. Do you have any stand-up? Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Do you have any stand-up moment from that time in Northern Ireland? Yes. Yes, I, I, um, I was relatively sociable there as well. And I, I was taking a young lady to the cinema in Belfast. And, um, and I, like all off-duty officers out in the country, was carrying a weapon, um, hidden. But it's a large sort of British Army service pistol. And I realized with horror as I was going towards the cinema, they were searching people on the way in. Now, I should have known that. But basically, they were searching people because at the time, a lot of places were being bombed, etc. So the police were searching people and I had a gun. This was not going to be very easy to explain. And if I did explain it, then everybody around me would know that I was a British officer. And obviously, I didn't want to be seen as a British officer or a Brit even. So I um, sort of smuggled the gun down the front of my trousers. And uh, your average British Army pistol is not small. Um, it's a full trouser full. And, uh, and so I got through the search and the young lady didn't know that I, um, I was carrying a gun either because she didn't need to. Um, but now they didn't turn the lights down and I was sitting in a seat absolutely crippled in pain because this very large trouser full of gun had... Um, combined with the soft tissues of my lower regions and, um, and very nearly left me um, incapable of fatherhood, I think. But um, anyway, finally the lights went down and I was able to, to move the damn thing to somewhere more comfortable. Well, Jesus. I'm not sure that's what you asked for, but it was, it was a quite an amusing moment with hindsight. And was it loaded at the time? Oh yes, always loaded. Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was, we were properly under threat. There were some, uh, there was kidnappings, you know, if you had been found out as to who you were, and I'm not at all sure I was allowed to be where I was, so I suspect I was taking an, an illicit risk in doing what I was doing. Um, but at the time, as I say, we weren't all as professional as we are now. 
um, or we became later in our careers, I was something of a risk taker. Not always a good thing. <laughs> Do you think any moment from your childhood shaped you into the person you are today? It's very deep now, I know, but... I don't think that you become the person you are today without every experience being part of that shaping. Certainly my time in the army, 32 years of, of being very good and very bad, probably in relatively equal measure, um, shaped me. I think everybody makes huge mistakes in life, um, some of which you learn from and grow from, and some you are destined to repeat through stupidity. I think I did both. And therefore, um, I think all of my army career led to where I am now. And all of my army career leads me to believe that where I am now is a much better place. Because although I enjoyed my career, and I absolutely loved the soldiers with whom I served, um, I'm loving my life now more. And therefore, it was all I knew. And um, now I'm in a, a much better place where everything I do has more tangible benefit than everything I did while serving. I'd like to just follow on from that point. Um, when was that moment that really flicked your, you know, flicked the switch in your brain and you started to turn your life around because you were drinking a huge amount, um, albeit it wasn't large quantities, but it's probably over on, on a continuous basis, um, 200 nights. We won't say nothing about that. <laughs> and uh, you were smoking a huge amount as well, which I, I know you touched on there, but I heard in previous podcasts, you were um, probably a chain smoker. If, if you, would, would I be right in saying that? Yes, I was a chain smoker. I was pretty unhealthy. I, um, I thought I was extremely funny when I was drunk. I probably wasn't. Um, and frankly, I wasn't actually a very clever or capable officer. Um, probably due to the fact that I was looking to enjoy life rather too much. So I, I actually, I, I met my wife and it was, uh, we, we both, she joined in with me to smoke for a bit and then said that's not for her. And then we tried to have children and uh, we weren't having much luck. So I got myself tested to see if it was my problem. And I certainly could have been contributing because the chap said that, uh, I wasn't very healthy at all in, in terms of um, breeding prospects. And it was probably down to my lifestyle. So I gave up cigarettes and I gave up um, alcohol on that day. And I haven't smoked or had a drink since. And that was 1991. So yeah, 31 years ago. Oh, well, and what was, how challenging was that at the start? Um, well, I suppose you, you had a reason and you had a purpose. Really no? at all. I, think, I think I was doing it for all the right reasons. Mm -hmm. um, I was doing it because Caroline had had a, a bottom drawer since she was about 12. She wanted children and we weren't having any luck. So I was doing it for all the right reasons, for the love of a good woman, I think. And with that newfound um, control, I found that I was a probably a little better at decision making when I was sober and I was a little more energetic when I wasn't smoking quite so well anything at all. So I just rather than sort of reintroduce either cigarettes or alcohol, I just decided I didn't need them, didn't need either and kept going for the next well for life, really, I, I feel much better. Um, I, I don't miss it. 
I'm still quite sociable when I want to be. It's all about the, the people in the room that change the change the um the temperature. I've got great friends here who can make any room into a party. And I certainly don't need alcohol and cigarettes to to help me with that. So um I feel very lucky now that it's given me my health back. Um and I'm probably as as healthy as anybody of my age. How did you start you know that transition that transitioning um you know did you start running or did you start lifting weights or what was the did you start walking yeah. 5k what what was the, the initial couple of we say year like well the army the army was always always required you to do some exercise um and to lead your men from the front so i could already run well enough but i'd have a cigarette at the start and the finish um because i was young enough to be able to do that so I, I could run, but I wasn't anything special. I could keep up or just stay ahead of the larger soldiers in my command. Um, and there were always soldiers who were much, much fitter than me. And as I went through my career, actually, I started to get fitter as they sort of petered out as soldiers. So I found it easier and easier to get to the front and lead from the front because I kept my health as I grew up. I, I suppose because I protected myself for the first 10 years by being drunk all the time. I um I hadn't I hadn't worn myself out and so I started late in the the fitness field if you like found I was quite good at some things like running I wasn't bad at all um and uh and I played a lot of rugby and normally for if it hadn't been for the regiment where I did play in the first team um but in any other club I would have been second third or fourth frankly I wasn't a very good rugby player but I enjoyed the social side of it and I loved the community side of it so a lot of rugby until I was about 47. Oh geez and what, what position do you play? Back row I was I was quite a good open side flanker so um that wasn't bad and when the number eight didn't turn up I was utility and I could go go in at the back of the pack as well so those my that's where I like to be. Do you still follow rugby? Yeah, always. Yes, and um, and yes, we'd love to beat you occasionally. It doesn't happen often enough. <laughs> always a good rivalry. It always seems to fall around St. Patrick's weekend. So it's uh, it does. It does. <laughs> it does. My my regiment was half Irish. We were the the Queen's own and Royal Irish. Wow. So we had a lot of Irishmen, and therefore every year, 17th February, we would celebrate Paddy's Day, 17th March. Sorry, and um, and we'd have a ball. Um, we'd wake them up with what we call gunfire. So we'd go and wake the soldiers up with, um, with some Jamsons or something similar. And um, that would start the day. And then it would be a day of celebration for Paddy's Day every year. Brilliant. brilliant. And overall, how long do you spend in the Army, um, David? Total of 32 years I served for. Um, so I got relatively high up in my time. But... Um, it all really started when I got married and, um, and Caroline supported me through um, 20 years of, of my career as a married man. Big difference. When a little did, more responsibility, perhaps. <laughs> when did the opportunity to write the doctorate, doctorate, doctorate at the time you wrote that, that's still in place today. Am I correct in saying that? Oh, yes. Yeah, the, the doctrine. The doctrine, doctrine yeah. for, um, for leadership was something that I was put in charge of a writing team. In other words, I was given several very intelligent young officers, all of whom could write much better English than I could. And being in charge of the writing team meant that I was basically the editor of the doctrine. And I decided what, what worked and what didn't. And this was doctrine for leadership. 
Um, so this happened in ooh, probably 2005, uh, six, seven. So yeah, quite recently re relative to my career. I was a Lieutenant Colonel at the time and I promoted out of that job into London as a full Colonel. So it was, um, yeah, it was great fun writing leadership doctrine based largely on my experience of, of leading recently before that. What was the main takeaways from that, that leadership doctrine? Oh, I mean, where do you start with leadership? Uh, possibly, no, most likely role model. Um, the best leaders in the world role model their leadership. The best leaders in the world do one-to-ones as their primary communication. So they take you aside on, well, certainly their top sort of five or six direct reports they should be taking aside every week. And that works in business. It works anywhere. And I think the, the analogy there is that we can probably, in, in evolutionary terms, only manage five or six real friends and really know five or six people. After that, they're more acquaintances. They're more village people, as in they come from your, your evolutionary village. So you know them, but you don't know them well. Um, and if you know five or six people really well, that's, that's the answer. So I had a five or six man team. And the army tends to give you that span of command of between five and nine people and never more than about nine. After nine, you're not going to be an effective leader. But role model leadership and one-to-ones, that's the takeaway from leadership. Second, secondly, I suppose I should add, just because there's so much I could talk about around leadership, and I don't think I want to turn this into some sort of leadership lecture, but I would add that then knowing yourself um, which is where something like Gallup Strengths Finder comes into it, a good psychometric. Um, knowing your people, again, back to the one-to-ones, you should be really intimate with your people in a very proper sense. You should be as close as, close as possible um, to your people. And finally, knowing your organization and its needs. So if you've got those three things as a leader, you're pretty well set for a success. Brilliant. Brilliant. I think we, we, without going down too much of a rabbit hole, we, we just kind of skimmed the surface there, which I, uh, I think is, is very, very interesting. I don't mind stopping on that one. It's something I've talked about all my life. <laughs> I suppose that leads into what I'm going to discuss next. Uh, when did this goal uh, of becoming the fittest man in the world at 60 start? And how close are you at achieving that now? Uh, it's a little bit naughty to say I'll, I'll be the fittest man in the world at 60. I plan to be. Um, I, I've set out in my goals about seven years ago that 60 seemed like a nice round number to be the Ironman world champion. Now, I'd been to um, the Big Island at that point probably twice or three times. So I'd already been to the world championship twice or three times. So I knew that the, the level of the world champion compared to the rest of us who were racing that race was a, a big step. And I knew that it would take me a long while to get that good. Now, with a year left to go, it's all getting a bit real. Um, so when did it start? Probably seven years ago. And you say the fittest man in the world at 60. Well, arguably, the world champion Ironman has got to be one of the fittest men in the world, depending on how you measure fitness, because anybody who can um, uh, swim the bike and run those sort of distances uh, is, has got to be considered fit. And if you're the best in your age, um, over those distances, you are arguably the fittest man in that sport in the world. 
Um, but I'm sure some CrossFitters would say that CrossFit people are fitter than Ironman endurance athletes. It, it depends how you measure fitness. How, how, how close do you achieve and say, I know maybe that's a bit too, too uh, direct about, about in the face of the world. Uh, it's quite a simple answer, but it's a bit glib, and that's about 500 days. I've got about 500 days left. <laughs> um, so that's how close I am. Because I, I don't think there's really a question in my mind that I will be. I, I just have to hope that on the day, my best is better than anybody else's best. But I've got to turn up and do my best. And then I can't control how they all act. So all I can do is prepare as well as I possibly can, be as consistent as I can, get up every morning because the guy that's going to beat me is getting up, and therefore I'm going to get up, um, and go and prepare my body scientifically, sensibly, look for small gains. But there's no question in my mind that if I give my best, why should anybody else in the world be better than me? I mean, he's got two arms, two legs, lungs, you know, I'm just going to prepare my machine better than him and, and if necessary, be a little more uncomfortable on the day than he is so that I don't slow down, whoever he is. And how, um, what, 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 like, what advice would you give to people, you know, let's say a, a normal lay person that, you know, would be listening to this podcast or obviously listen to high performance podcast out there? You know, how can they, what can they do to start to change their life? Um, you know, because I suppose it, it's easy to kind of go down this rabbit hole. You should do this, this, this. But I suppose, is it, would it be very much about just minor steps each day and that'll build up to something major down the line? Jamie, you're spot on. There is no, there's no plan. There's no, there's no way that suits everybody. We are all so different. We're different in the amount of sleep that we need. We're different in the, the types of food that work for us were different in the um, the way our bodies adapt to strain, which is training, you know. So I can't say you have to train three times a day like this, like this, like this, because for some people it would be too much. For other people, it wouldn't be sufficient challenge for their bodies to adapt. And all we're doing here is trying to work out, you know, the optimal for ourselves. So anybody who says this is the the formula to get really good at Ironman is probably a pretty shoddy coach. What you need to do is to really listen to your body, give it every chance to recover as much as every chance to train um, so that it can adapt and improve over time. Now, there's no reason why you at your age should not be um, fantastic or me at my age should not be fantastic. We, we don't actually lose the ability to gain muscle in age. So even at 60, I won't have, I, I will still have the same ability to grow muscle if I do all the right things and to adapt my body to survive a longer race, which the Ironman is. You know, you've been dealing with high performers for a huge amount of, of years and you would probably come across different types of high performers. Overall, have you identified a common trend across these high performance people? I think I probably have, but again, it's a very big simplification. Yeah. Generalization, if you like. And the generalization, I would say, and there will always be outliers in any sort of Six Sigma curve or anything else you look at, there are outliers who are different. Um, but 
the largest majority of high performers are people that make great choices each day and make choices around around growth rather than pleasure so if you've got a binary choice between i don't know getting up and not getting up which one is going to give you the most growth now on certain days it may be not getting up because your body needs more rest but most of the time the growth decision is going to be the least comfortable so it often comes down to um, getting up early, I think, is is a common denominator amongst um, high performers. Um, making difficult decisions, courageous decisions around what is going to give you pleasure and what is going to give you happiness in the long term. That's that's a good one. They all seem to have that ability. Being comfortable with being uncomfortable. In other words, not shying away from discomfort is something most of them do, whether that's mental discomfort, emotional discomfort, physical discomfort. High performers tend to be more resilient and tend to be able to hold their feet to the fire a little longer. What do you think endurance events, or even if you break it down to endurance running or endurance swimming, you know, if you break it down individually, what do you think they teach an individual? Oh, that's a good one. I think they teach you that you very rarely take your body to the limit and that the feelings that your body gives you when it says, ow, this hurts, please stop, are purely an insurance policy. And if you listen to that insurance policy, you're still well short, most likely. There are some people who take it to the limit, but most likely you're still well short of the limit that your body is capable of. So most people, I think, go through life using about 40% of their physical potential. And that's 60% wasted, in my view. That 60% of your capacity has never been used. I mean, you can do a little exercise with yourself right now. You can just stop your breath on the top of a breath without breathing in deeply or anything else. Just a normal breath and stop your breath on the top of the breath. And you'll find you can now breathe in again, even though you were on the top of the breath. Now you can breathe in again. And then you can hold your breath. And then you can breathe in again. And there's still capacity in your lungs to do it about three or four times beyond what you're using while you're in normal function during the day. Our bodies are hugely capable machines, but most people only use a fraction of their ability. And just another one kind of still on the topic, um, David, because I've seen, you know, you see different studies and, and, and stuff like that. But when you're running, is there a certain structure you should be running as, you know, shoulders up or, or chest up and uh, chest out and, you know, um, head up? And is there a, an importance to breathe through the nose rather than the mouth? Have you come across anything like that? Oh, yes. Oh, I can go on about this one all day, too. I'm afraid it's a really, really good, comfortable subject. You're in my, you're sort of on my home pitch. <laughs> I'm, I'm really enjoying playing this game. Uh, the, the bottom line with this is that we are all different, so there is no prescription, but standing tall, shoulders back, keeping your hips under you, um, tilting your pelvis under so that you don't have a, your bottom sticking out backwards, those are all good technical running tips. Also, for long-distance running, shorter strides are often more efficient, um, but if you're a sprinter or a 1,500-meter runner, you probably want a great big long stride and you're going to power through. And then, of course, there's technique in the swim as well. So all of these sports have technical uh, 
um, skills that you can develop through practice and really need, if you want to be the very best, you need a coach because what you think you look like when you're running and what you actually look like is very different. I think I look like Mo Farah when I'm running. I think I'm, I'm absolutely, but actually I look like a shuffling old bloke. But as long as I shuffle longer and slightly faster than the other shuffling old bloke, I'll win. So it's, if I can make tiny changes, and this is the 1% each day that we try to achieve. If you can make tiny changes to your uh, technique, you can make a great deal of difference. Now, it doesn't even matter if you don't do it physically. If you can rehearse those in your mind, you can change your fitness. There was a really interesting study I read recently and peer reviewed, double blind, really good. And basically they found that somebody who was visualizing a muscle building exercise, let's take bicep curls. I think most of us understand the bicep curl. Um, by visualizing that for a period of about 15 minutes a day, visualizing not moving the muscle at all, not moving the arm, visualizing three sets of 10 repeats with a heavy weight in your hand, just looking at it in your mind with your eyes closed and doing that for 10 to 15 minutes. In three weeks, elicited a 13.5% gain in the muscle mass of the arm that was visualized without any exercise being done. Our minds control how our body develops. Oh my God. Isn't that awesome? Wow. Isn't that an amazing thing to think about? You don't even have to go to the gym. You can close your eyes <laughs> and visualize the exercises and still get gains. That is phenomenal. You might share that, um, that with me after. I'd be interested to read that. That's amazing. Oh, it's, it's, it's astounding stuff. The power of the mind in terms of how we develop our bodies and the power of the mind in terms of how we can um, withstand, be robust in the face of what would otherwise be really uncomfortable. So I think something we talk about a lot is being comfortable with being uncomfortable. Um, and the way to do this is to do it regularly, frankly. I, you build rituals into your day, into your week, into your year that allow you to um, consistently, and it really is important, um, target some strength-based behaviors. You, know, you practice them on purpose. You position them in your day to enhance your performance. These are rituals, and I, I try to do that every single day. What do you think is the core of, is, we say is the foundation that allows you to perform each day? Is it sleep? I think you touched on that before. Yeah, okay. Sleep first. I think it's probably about 60% of health is regular, and I mean going to bed at the same time and getting up at the same time, regular sleep. Uh, for me, I think it's really important to see sunrise. So I see every dawn of every day. I'm up before dawn, I'm outside at dawn, I see the sun come up. Now we're very lucky, we're in Dubai, the sun comes up. In Ireland, you watch the cloud turn from black to gray. I realize that, <laughs> it's the same in England. But that light is the same light that's coming through. And it's the light that matters because most of what we do in terms of health is, is triggered by the eye. So the foundation is sleep undoubtedly 60%, then about 35% after that is what you put in your body and when you put it in your body and how much you put in your body. In other words, nutrition. 
I don't call it diet. I don't like to diet. I like to eat as much healthy food as my body wants, but I do it at um, in a specific window. So I try to eat between 11 a.m. and 7 p.m. because that seems to work for me. Um, and then that my body gets about 16 hours where it's either digesting food for the first three and then for about 13 hours, it's properly clean and in a fasted state. And that clean fasted state causes it to do a lot of what we call autophagy, which is where it basically goes and gets all the rubbish that has been produced by being awake. Um, and it deals with it, especially in the brain. Um, in the brain and the colon, the gut, that's where all the cleanup is taking place or a lot of the cleanup. And obviously the rest of the body needs cleaning out too. But if you keep eating, and the average American I heard the other day eats 15 times a day. Now that's snacks and crisps and sweeties here and a meal there and then a bowl of chips. And then, you know, it's not really eating 15 times a day, but they keep on putting food in their mouths. And I suspect the Brits and the Irish are exactly the same. I think the Brits are on, on course to be the fattest, sorry, most obese, um, nation in the world soon anyway um but the end result is if you eat too often you will put on weight because it's not just calories in calories out although that is a, a good measure mm -hmm. but it's also when you eat and what you eat so i try to avoid too many simple sugars that doesn't mean i don't do it but i limit my carbohydrate in, intake i just and it's not limit by counting it I limit it purely by saying, actually, I'll choose the lettuce over the burger bun, you know, sometimes, not always, sometimes I eat the burger bun, but I'm aware of what I'm putting in my body. And I treat this 35% that is food as um, having a purpose. So I eat on purpose. If I've exercised hard and I need to replace some carbs, then I'll eat some carbs. If I'm just resting on a beach somewhere in some tropical isle, wouldn't that be nice? Um, then I would probably be eating something like, like salads with a bit of um, uh, olive oil and some great seasoning. You know, that would be a, a great way to eat in that situation. And then if I've been lifting weights and I think I need a bit more um, uh, protein, then yes, I, my go-to is eggs, all eggs, whole eggs, preferably cooked. But if necessary, I'll, I'll do a, a Rocky and drink six raw eggs if you want me to. I, they go down the same hole. It'll, it'll feed me. Yeah. It's, do, would you actually do that? Would you, would you eat eggs? I would. Yeah. If, if, I didn't have to, if I didn't have time, I'll, I'll probably just mix them in with, um, with some yogurt and a few other things that don't sound like they'll go together, but that'll, that'll do it. It goes down the same hole. True, true, true. Look, we're coming to the end now, David, and uh, thanks for this. I really appreciate it. But you started doing the training camps um, on the beach twice weekly or three times every week. Uh, how's that going? And what, you know, would you have seen a lot of change for people? We, we have about between 20 and 30 people every Tuesday and Thursday at 5.30 in the morning. And it's more about laughter and blokiness. And it's not very politically correct, but it is just blokes because blokes on their own react very differently to blokes in a um, with, with girls at the same time. So it tends to be blokes only. It's about 20 to 30 people laughing and working out very hard, mostly in competition with each other, 
the difference to these guys we've got blokes who've let, let lost 40 plus kilos um we've got uh, the biggest chat we had is now um white collar boxing in just under a month's time going into the ring um and he he was huge and is now much less huge he's the fastest man on the beach despite being over 100 kilos you know he's just a hugely fit man now and we laugh and we tell jokes and they're not very clever and they're not very amusing but they're told in such a way that we all laugh and we can't stop and um and it's just community it's it's great friends who are there for each other not just on the beach but because they met on the beach where we have a shared experience of discomfort we tend to help each other in the rest of our lives too so um, i'm fitting out my new house i've just bought a house and the fit out is being done by one of the guys from the beach because we help each other out you know it's um it's a community so if anybody wants to come and join our community they're very welcome um they better not be too um sensitive about bad jokes um because some of what we say shouldn't be published uh, but nor is it meant with any other purpose than to amuse not to hurt or anything else like that it's just bloody good fun brilliant, brilliant. um you're okay so you're, you're very active on social media um yourself and your wife how did the perception differ from the reality of putting your life out there on social media it's a great question because we see so much on social media that looks so good and so perfect especially through filters and um whatever else people mm -hmm. use i don't use them but when you look like this actually you know filters aren't going to be much good so caroline my wife is also on social media and she's much more um followed than i am um and we're both you know caroline is the first to admit she's 57 and she'll be 58 in july and i'm 59 and i'll be 60 next year and so we're not going to turn up and try to hide the wrinkles we've got wrinkles you know but we're both fit and we're healthy and we're in shape and we want to uh, be role models it comes back to this leadership thing um we want people to see what is possible um without frankly compromising our happiness in any way i've never been happier nor caroline nor has caroline so we show our wrinkles our gray hair our lack of hair um and we live our lives yes on social media but it is absolutely authentic you know you'll see that caroline is really pissed off with the fact she's got wrinkly knees well hey we're 57 and 59 you know have wrinkly knees and david like you're so positive, upbeat, um, and the positiveness is very contagious. You know, you listen to you and chatting to you, it definitely bounces off on, uh, on, on people. Um, were you always like this? And how do you deal with the bad days? Uh, no, I wasn't always like this. And I've had plenty of bad days. Most of my bad days have been around situations that I cannot control. And I think everybody has this problem, that we get worried when we are uncertain or when we are powerlessness when we are powerless when we when we can't actually control a situation and frankly if you think about it the only thing you can control is right now it's this moment this is the what you are doing in this moment is the only thing you control the rest of it is out of your control the future you might expect 
to be going to bed at nine o'clock. You can't control that. You cannot say I will be in bed at nine o'clock because something might happen that you can't control. So all you can control is now. And when it gets to nine o'clock, you can say, actually, the best choice I could make for growth would be to go to bed now, even though I want to watch another episode of Squid Games or whatever. Doesn't matter. Make the choice that indicates growth and do it in the moment. Do it now. Because that's the only way to stay positive. You cannot control what's going to happen. You, that's, that's a story that's yet to be written. And if you rely on your memories, then you're probably going to create those memories again and again. And they're never as good as the, the alternative, which is potential. So uh, I think looking back on past glories is e equally dangerous because that limits you to whatever you've achieved in the past being the limit of well, future. So from my point of view, it's do whatever it is you're doing now to the very best of your ability. And what will be, will be. And so when, I'm, when I find myself feeling powerless, I just bring myself back to now and say, you know, what I'm saying to, to Jamie here, does it make sense? Yes, I think so. Is it going to be useful? You know, are the people in this room, and that probably means your listeners, viewers, are they going to be a tiny bit better because you're in the room if I say the right thing now? So I've got to think about the right thing now. It doesn't matter when I'm going to bed or what's happening tomorrow. Um, and that takes the anxiety away because you can control what is now. And that means no anxiety. Indeed, when you have control, you can have excitement. But when you've got no control, you just have anxiety. Love that. Brilliant. Brilliant. And just... Uh... So I'm excited. <laughs> and Dave, do you, do you practice on your breath work? Do you find your breath work actually helps you with everything? Again, this is being in the moment. So I use things like breath work. Um, uh, normally, when I'm driving to my first exercise of the day, because most of the time is is um, I have to drive from here to the beach. I have to, to drive from here to the cycling track. I have to drive from here to the pool. Um, and even when I'm going out for a run, I spend the first two or three minutes doing breath work before I go for a run. It just resets your autonomic nervous system. Now, breath work is not complicated for the viewers here, listeners. Breath work can be as simple as breathing in for five counts, holding your breath for five counts, breathing out for five counts, holding your breath at the bottom of that breath for five counts, then breathing back in. And while you're concentrating on that, you can only be present. It's impossible to think of anything else. If you're trying to breathe in for five seconds, hold your breath for five seconds, breathe out for five seconds, hold your breath. You won't think of anything else. You're just resetting your mind and your body. So yes, I use breath work um, all, all the time, but I also use balance work. I'll, I'll always brush my teeth on one leg. Now that sounds a little, little bit strange. I realize <laughs> that. But if you're standing on one leg, you're actually exercising all of the stabilizing muscles in that hip, knee, and ankle. And it doesn't cost you any pain or difficulty to do it. And you can brush your teeth at the same time. You're going to brush your teeth anyway. You've just done some exercise without really meaning to do any exercise. It's, it's been really important because those stabilizing, those accessory muscles are vital as you get, get older to control your body in a fall, for instance. And then I'll swap to the other leg while I, um, while I wash my face. You know, easy. I've exercised both legs. An interesting little factoid for you. There's a lot of science now to say that we're all unbalanced 
and most of us have a stronger right leg than left leg. Jamie, help me. Why might that be? Because we were all well, the way it comes down. It comes down. It comes down. Interesting. I think it's interesting because I'm probably mad as a fish. But anyway, I think it's because we drive automatic cars. And while your foot is on the accelerator and preparing to brake, it is the whole leg is engaged. Every muscle is working to keep the accelerator nicely balanced or to be ready to jump on the brake if there's an accident. Your left leg, however, is inert. It has just gone to sleep for the time that you're in the car. It's doing no work whatsoever. And that, to me, is, and actually there's quite a lot of science behind it, is why we are unbalanced by 4% on the right-hand side because of automatic cars. Now, if you drive a good old-fashioned manual, then you probably don't have that problem because your left leg is doing quite a lot of heavy clutch work from time to time. But it comes down to engaging the muscles. And even in an accident, they've got data to show that even in an accident, the left leg doesn't wake up. The right leg does, it jumps on the brake and you slam into the airbags and you smash your face open and all the rest of the nastiness. Your left leg still doesn't wake up, does, does nothing. It's dead because your body has got so used to driving a car on one side. Amazing. Whoa, Whoa Jesus, that's phenomenal. Oh, no. Amazing, amazing. Look, David, I've, I've kept you for a good while now and I apologize for that. Uh, I think we've went through a huge amount. Um, and I'd, uh, I'm absolutely like... delighted, Jamie. You've got a, a great show here, and I hope that people enjoy it. Very, like... very um, honoured that you, you brought me on to your show because it's a, it's a super show. Oh, brilliant. Thank you so much for that, David. I appreciate it. And thanks for taking time out to come on into your podcast. And uh, I'm sure we'll, uh, we'll see each other next week. We will. I'll see you there. And the very best to you and anybody who's listening. I hope you all enjoyed that interview with David. I think we got a great insight into his career and his mindset, um, and I hope he, he takes something from it. That is all from us on this week's episode. Please get in contact with the show if you'd like to be part of it in any way possible, and be sure to follow us on social media. Uh, we're on all social media platforms. Search and interview podcasts are on the ball, team building, and you'll find us. Have a lovely week, and be sure to tune in again next week when we have another exciting guest. Till then, stay safe and remember, cred on it, Talk to you all soon and thank you all for listening.